Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. My name is Miguel Connor and I am still your Pompidus of Gnosis. How about a special show, a presentation from the Finding Hermes group? As many of you know, the Finding Hermes group is a sort of upgrade from AB Prime or Patreon, where we have exclusive and private meetings twice a month. One of them is a Q&A and discussion, and the other one is a also exclusive presentation. This presentation that I'm making public is from Alex Rivera on his new book, The Laurel Turns Green. Uh, if you don't know Alex's work, it's, uh, well, he's an amazing researcher when it comes to Gnosticism. An incredible eye. In fact, uh, the book he co-wrote with Tracy Twyman, Rest Her Soul, uh, the book Baphomet is one of my favorite books of all times, especially when it comes to research on, yes, Baphi himself, Abraxas, uh, Sophia, the origins of Gnosticism, and the Knights Templar, an excellent book. And his new book, The Laurel Turns Green, is really up there too. So get ready for Alex's research on some enigmatic gods like Eros, Hermes, Mithra, Saturn, and how these beings tie into esoteric groups like the cult of Orpheus, uh, Gnostic sects, Thelema, Kabbalah, Freemasonry, and yes, the Knights Templar. He puts it all together and gives us a, a historical overview of these powers that have been influencing humanity for thousands of years. Great presentation that I wanted to make public for you. So please, if you can, join the Finding Hermes group. Uh, when I do a presentation on, let's say, Gnosticism and something related, I often, I often put it in the Virtual Alexandra Academy. And you can have access to that with just a one-time payment. But there are presentations that never make it to the light of day that are just for the group. Very exclusive. Some of these include uh, deeper dives into Carl Jung and Mary Magdalene, uh, presentations on Gnostic uh, and also mystic meditations, uh, presentations on how to avoid mind control and so forth. Uh, I've even done a presentation where I talked about my experiences with ayahuasca. It's very personal. And I tie in uh, Amazon groups like Santu Daimi and others to Gnostic thought. So check it out because it's very rewarding and it's a deeper dive into Gnostic thought, philosophy, and theology. I even recently did a presentation with some guests on a course in miracles where we talk about its Gnostic ideas and how it can make it work for you. And well, it's very cool. Check that out too. For all non-subs, you will just get Alex's electric presentation. 
for all subs like Patreons, AB Prime members, uh, Red Circle subscribers, and uh, cats on Rockfin, I will also include our Q&A afterwards. And it's very intense as we talk a lot about uh, the Demiurge and Gnosis and other things. So once again, for the full dope, please join one of the membership levels or just join the Finding Hermes program. And for those of you watching the Q&A, you'll notice I'm on my phone. That day when we did the presentation with Alex, there was a huge ice storm here where I live and all power was out. I had to get on my phone, but I was able to get on, get online, get everybody together and record it. And it all worked out really well. So in case you're wondering why I'm just wandering around with my phone in the dark, that's the reason. But enough of my drivel, as I used to say, let's get to the presentation. I think you'll really enjoy it. As always, write your own gospel, live your own myth. So my name is uh, Alex Chiveras. I am the author of uh, a few different books here. I wrote a book called The Sunly Unveiled back in 2020. And this, is, uh, this book is basically a collection of different essays I wrote on my website it's called the aoni.com and um the book now it's really named after uh a group of cathars right uh well cathar prophecy now the book itself is not so much about the cathars but i kind of sort of took the term the laurel turns green from a uh a cathar priest called um gilham no sorry yeah, I think it's Gilham Ballybast, something like that. Yeah. And he was a, a Cathar priest and he was burned at the stake in 1321 by the Catholic Inquisition. And what had happened is before his uh, sudden execution by at the, the fiery flames, um, he uttered a prophecy that the, um, the Lord will turn green again in 700 years. Okay. And when we add up the, uh, the numbers, 700 years from 1321, it adds up to 2021, right? Now, uh, <laughs> now when when I I wrote an article called uh, "Cathar Prophecies: Lion Gate in the Age of Wormwood," and that whole thing was about how this Cathar uh, prophecy ties into a lot of these other concepts I've noticed, uh, such as um, you know when we when we talk about uh, Alistair Crowley's eon of horus or um or also like the age of wormwood uh the age of aquarius all that good stuff so all these different ages are kind of sort of coalescing um so and then when i looked at that then it's then we're then we'll see what's happening now on the world stage you know everything is just kind of going a little crazy here so so i thought maybe it kind of maybe means something significant so that's where i got that um the term the laurels turns green from that Cather prophet or sorry martyr i should say so who exactly were the cathars well this is just a blurb here real quick so so kind of like what i said earlier so i mean now the book itself i mean is it is a conjunction of different uh, ideas and philosophies that i've kind of looked research over the years from like the Orphic Mysteries, Hermetic Philosophers, the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, Neoplatonism, that also get into the histories of like Jesus Christ, Simon the Magician, Apollonius, Iambuchus, stuff like that. I also get into, also in the book, 
um, the, the hidden mysteries of the Promethean Lucifer Lightbearer archetype, right? That we see a lot, you know, um, in the occult. And, and then I'll also get into the Kabbalistic ritual program that we've seen in the movie Mother. So that's a really interesting uh, movie. And I actually wrote an essay for Miguel's website. So by the way, it's all about that. Pretty crazy. <laughs> Once you look into the, I mean, we can dedicate like a whole show to that. Uh, so here we go. Okay, that prophecy. So kind of like said earlier. So, so we have this coalescence or conjunction of different prophecies, occult prophecies, happening really at the same time. Really, I think. Um, and then towards the end here, I mean, you kind of get the gist of what I said earlier. So, but it says here, 23 is the inverse of uh, 322, and it's also the year of the rabbit, according to the Chinese zodiac. So the 322 is associated with the Skull and Bones Society at Yale University. So coincidentally, Yale turns 322 years old this year. Now, who exactly were the Cathars? So uh, the Cathars were uh, a medieval Gnostic Christian sect, and um, they were in southern France, and they were around you know, the 12th century, but of course they were stamped out, stamped out by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, <clears throat> the thing with the Roman Catholic Church was if, the, if you were a heretic around that time, you were basically an enemy of the state, basically. So if you exhibit any sort of heresy, I mean, you're kind of looked at this with suspicion. So that this whole inquisition thing was what um, jump-started the, the uh, witch hunts of the later Middle, Eager, Middle Ages, right? Um, now, the Cathars, they lived in, they tend to live in chastity and poverty without the uh, possessions. They didn't like wealth, unlike the Roman Catholic Church, right, at the time. And of course, they still are. Now, they're also known as Albigensians from the town of Albi. And um, now, and of course, when we looked at Cathar beliefs, they have this very radically dualist idea that we also can be traced to the Monarchians. And um, the Monarchians, I mean, they, they themselves believed in the two principles, both light and darkness. Uh, and of course, that comes from Zoroastrianism as well. But when you look at um, a lot of these Cathar beliefs, uh, especially look at um, the Book of Two Principles as one. Another one's called the Secret, um, Secret Supper is another one. So they basically believe that um, humanity were just basically fallen angels, right? <clears throat> um, so basically the story goes that uh, humanity were, were Adam and Eve were originally angels in heaven, but they were tricked by Lucifer or the Rex Mundi in heaven. And then we fell from heaven from the pleroma, if you want to call it that. But then we became trapped in corrupt matter in these cycles of reincarnation. So, and to be released from this uh, cycle of dukkha, as the Buddhists call it, uh, it's through the, uh, the purification ritual known as the consolamentum, okay? And the consolamentum was, um, it's kind of like a 
it's almost like uh, how uh, popes or you know they they channel the Holy Spirit into the next pope or whoever, right? So like, you're basically like a spirit, like a game of spiritual um, game tag. <laughs> so you're it, right? So and then all of that, so all that spiritual energy is charged, and then you uh, take on that blessing. And then that's what sort of like makes you initiate the Cathar faith, right? Um, so, of course, the purpose of life was to renounce all pleasures, the flesh, enticements of the world through vegetarianism and celibacy. Um, so through, through repeated incarnations, one can make back to heaven. And of course, you know, all material things were produced by the Demiurge or the Rex Mundi. And all spiritual things were produced by the uh, good God of the New Testament. And uh, of course, like, of course, I mentioned it earlier, there were Monarchians, or much like the Monarchians, believed like them. Now, if you look at um, the Orphic religion, so I get into this essay that I wrote. It's called "The Orphic Eros and on the Origin of the World," and how that worked. Well, how what they believed is basically is that uh, I mean, of course, they were obviously pagan because they. Um, they believed in the different uh, Orphic deities, like Phanes is one, uh, Mithras is another one, and it all connects to this uh, deity called Eros as well that you see in Greek philosophy. Um, now, they also created things like the Orphic hymns, uh, and some of their beliefs included that human souls are divine and immortal, and they're doomed to live in this grievous cycle of successive bodily lives. Through uh, this transmigration of the souls. And they also practice secret initiation rites to connect their souls to the better afterlife, okay? Now, there's um, a text, uh, a Gnostic text in the Nagamani, it's called On the Origin of the World. And uh, how that, it's like a really crazy text. So it opens up, um, it's like a mixture of different ideas. You see that from Genesis. You see that from, uh, you see a lot of influences from uh, Hesiod's Theogony is another one. A lot of influences from the Kabbalah as well. Well, I mean, not the Kabbalah that we you know consider Kabbalah today, but I mean, there's a lot of um, correspondences for sure. So basically text opens up as a philosophical discourse about uh, primeval chaos, along with the establishment of the boundary between the upper and the lower worlds, the formation of Yaldabaoth, uh, the chief ruler generated by Pistis Sophia. So the cosmogony and later the anthropogony are partially oriented to the earthly chapters of Genesis, as well as Jubilees and one Enoch. Then uh, now, of course, there are Jewish influences that also surface in the author's angelology, demonology, eschatology, and even epistemologies. So uh, then it says here, so the central teaching of the text is that of the immortal light Adam. So, and I'm sure uh, Cathar has believed a lot of this stuff. It's all connects to how um, the Adam Kadmon it's a very Kabbalistic idea. So it says here from borrowing from Genesis 1, 26 and 2, 7, humanity is said to be created by the archons or rulers according to the image of the bestial archons in the likeness of the light Adam. 
So a heavenly primeval man who corresponds in a certain way to the third messenger in Manichaeanism. And of course, Adam Kahneman, the Kabbalah, and the Anthropos of Poemandries that we see in the Hermetic literature. Now, it says here in a, in a counter campaign, in the light world, the Sophia, or Zoe, uh, who functions as a savior and also competes or completes the Archon's unfinished creation of man, fashions a spiritual man who is manifested in different ways as a bringer of, of the Gnosis, as the spiritual wife of Adam, as the serpent or the beast, and as the instructor in paradise who is viewed favorably. So fundamentally, all of these beings are Sophia or Zoe herself. So, I mean, they kind of read like uh, different aspects of her, really. And now, uh, Eros is uh, singled out in, as with the atom of light in the text is portrayed as providing the creative seed that generated the cycles of birth and death. So Eros is also credited to providing uh, the creative seed uh, for plants and animals on the earth through the help of the angels and their seed. And it says here, uh, originally Eros is portrayed as the youngest of all the gods as a deity of love and platonic thought. Uh, Eros is first mentioned in the Symposium of Pla by Plato through the wise priestess or oracle Diotima. Now, uh, Eros is really interesting because he's a very multi multifaceted spirit, if you want to call it that. Um, so Eros is according to one of a sentence by Ignatius of Antioch, uh, where he says in, in uh, well, sort of is a connection to Romans 7.2 as an appellation of Christ and is also the name conferred by this Gnostic sect on the primal man in, in his brightest manifestation. Now, here's a little quote from On the Origin of the World. And when I say Gnostic sect, I mean, it could very well, I mean, just no one really knows who wrote this book or this text. Uh, a lot of might be it might be a single author, might be multiple authors. I mean, it kind of feels like it it's belongs to multiple authors. It's been worked over, I think. Kind of like um, the New Testament, I would say. Um, so here, let me read this. So it says, uh, out of the first blood, Eros appeared, bring, being androgynous. His masculine nature is Hemeros. So, so there's Eros, right? Because he is fire from light. His feminine nature which is with, with him is a blood soul and is derived from the substance of proanoia. So he is very handsome in his beauty, having more loveliness than all the creatures of chaos. Then when all the gods and their angels saw Eros, they became enamored of him. Okay. And it says Eros is the son of the proanoia, which is the form of anoia or forethought, a form or, or mask of Barbello. So, well, I, I was doing a little digging to that. And it, so it's like a divine cosmology that we see in a lot of these Gnostic texts. So it's sort of like a reference to that. Then it says here, uh, chaos is here, uh, the, the matrix of creation, as it is in the Gnostic sermon of Hippolytus. So Eros resembles the, the primal man in this combination of sexes, Hermaphroditic, and those who see him feel the same desire that is awakened by Poe Mandrews, that other 
emanation of the divine mind. Uh, so Eros is uh, ultimately a luminous or androgynous or even uh, enthephalic or eternally <laughs> hard or rex symbol of the mystery religions as a primal man. So, I mean, you see a lot of like, you know, pagan deities with, with a heart on basically. Um, like Priapus is one, but, but all, you know, con uh, convert uh, reference to the divine fertility, right? Then it says, um, Eros is also connected to Otis, Hermes, Sophia, uh, Osiris, Sophia, and even Jesus Christ himself. Eros is credited with the, with the universal fertility generation, the power of alchemy to transfer the philosophers via its aspect of love. Now, to the Gnostics, Eros was allowed to be uh, a take for a symbol of the Christian redeemer and savior, and the lover and beloved of the light of the elect. Now, of course, there are uh, platonic influences going on with Eros as well. So just cover a little bit here. Um, so love is, is somewhere in between the beautiful and the ugly, uh, according to uh, Plato. Uh, so following Diotima, Socrates compares love to correct belief, that is, between ignorance and knowledge. Now, what's also interesting about love or Eros is that he's called a daemon or the great daemon. So, and uh, daemons were uh, considered that, um, I'm sorry, the gods were considered to be like daemons, according to Homer. Uh, now, he, uh, he, or love, is between the mortal and immortal. So we, that, we see that in Symposium. The myth, the myth of the birth of love. So he was a son born on Aphrodite's birthday on the, of, the, of the parents, uh, which is, so, so Eros is kind of like, this weird interesting mix of like uh, uh resource and need so it's like so love is described as hard harsh and barefoot not soft and delicate so that's one aspect of eros okay and uh now eros is also interestingly called a magician by plato so this matches the idea that the Greek philosophers were often confused as magicians, much like prophets, priests, kings, and messiahs. And they're also often confused uh, or connect uh, to the uh, magician, basically. Now, the esoteric practice of theurgy was devised to transform the soul into an immortal divine substance. So, so this is all comparable to how Eros, the intermediary uh, daemon is referred to as a magician by Plato. So here's an interesting uh, quote from Plato. Says his father's side for its part makes him a schemer after the beautiful and good, courageous and impietous and intense, a clever hunter, always weaving new devices, both passionate or wisdom for wisdom and resourceful in looking for it, philosophizing through all his life, a clever magician, sorcerer, and sophist. You see that from the symposium. And then there are other Orphic influences going on in that text on the origin of the world. Uh, so there is a, a Greek god by the name of Hephaestus. He was considered a Greek god of fire, metallurgy, and building construction. So if you kind of think about it, he's sort of like a symbol of the demiurge. So he, uh, 
he's a god of construction, right? Uh, so he's a son of uh, Zeus and Hera, although later it's debated. So he is often identified with the Italian volcanic, volcanic god Andronis, uh, Volcanus to Volcano of Genesis, and Azazel of one Enoch. Uh, then it says Hephaestus was also a, has a minor role in Orphic literature. He was the forger of the mirror that distracted Dionysus while the infernal titans plotted to rend them limb from limb. Zeus got this revenge against the titans by hurling bolts of lightning to destroy them. It is said that the, out of their ashes, humanity was forged from their blood as the elements of Dionysus. So Platonist to whom the sensible universe was a mirror of Dionysus uh, and would understand the world's soul being dismembered by its fall into this mirror that is the cosmos. So it lived a fragmentary existence in the souls of individuals. So seduced, now it was seduced like the Anthropos of America, the soul becomes a prisoner of the world. So you see that in um, the Hermetica pretty explicitly. So I know in the Hermetica it talks about how um, that the rational soul is basically, or the Anthropos is uh, seduced by nature and then he, he sort of like in, falls in love with his image in the water. So it's kind of like the, where it get the, the, uh, the term narcissist from, right? And now here's a, an excerpt uh, from an, an essay I wrote for, for uh, Miguel's website called Johnny Mercury, uh, John the Baptist in Egypt. And I just thought it was pretty interesting what I, uh, what I kind of put together. So uh, now Jesus is also called the word of locus of God. I mean, I don't have to read the whole thing if you don't guys don't want me to, but um, if you want, I mean, whatever. But um, so yeah, he's, uh, he's, yeah, he's called the reason of God. The logos translates translate to reason. Uh, so, and um, now there's also the logi, which are sort of like a plural version of logos, but I thought it was really interesting. So logi are also referred to the uh, platonic forms related to the God. So uh, theoretical tokens and symbols are used by the Platonists like, uh, or Neoplatonists like Iamblichus, which I get into the book. Uh, I know I wrote a, a, an essay called, um, Theurgy and the Chaldean Oracles. So I and I get into Iamblichus pretty heavily in that essay. Um, but he he actually believed like in a he called it demiurgy. But you're basically you're not really fighting against the demiurge. Really, you're just more like you're working with demiurge to become a demiurge. The demiurge. It's kind of it's kind of uh, interesting how what he believed. Uh, but anyway. Uh, then it says here, um, Hermes' influences also extends to um, the celestial beings known as angels. And, and in the essay, I also connect Hermes and Mercury with Eros as well. So there's a connection there because they're both considered messenger uh, deities or intermediaries. And then, um, yeah, so think about how the uh, Mercury and Hermes is both messenger of the, of the gods. The angel means messenger in Greek, the role in the, in the cosmic order is mercurial in function so they all connect to mercury in some way angels that is and then uh hermes or mercury is the green man also known as the horn god or sernunos uh, and of course these symbols may exist in the forms of like a lion 
or rooster heliotrope, world representations of Helios and Apollon. Uh, and then, uh, he, now this is interesting. So Iamblichus, he, uh, he interprets different Greek and Hermetic gods like Asclepius Dionysus as different manifestations of the Demiurge or sublunar Demiurge. So I, I don't really, don't haven't really seen uh, other texts get into that. I know, of course, you know, we see Gnostic texts divide the Demiurge into several different powers. But um, the way he does is a little more uh, specialized to his purposes because he's more of a pagan, of course. So he wasn't really in, into the uh, Christian stuff, right? Um, now, Iamblichus, he was um, a Neoplatonic philosopher in the fourth century. So he wrote different books like um, on the on the Egyptian mysteries is one. And I know he's he's very much into that hermetic Pythagorean uh, current, if you want to call it that. And let's see here. So so we have different gods like yeah, of course, Chronos. Uh, then you have. Uh, then you have Asclepian Dionysus. They're all different aspects of the Demiurge, is how he'd interpret it. Uh, so then it says here, the initiated Theurgist was said to have the Logi fill, filled in their souls and magical rituals dedicated to Mercury, such as a consecration of the talisman, the Logi, or the element of that deity is said to empower the object, much like how the Catholic priest is said to bless the holy water of the Eucharist through the, through the uh, laying of hands via the Holy Spirit power. So you can think of the Loga as the intellectual forms. So it's all, it's all very magical. So let's pull it that way. But it does connect to uh, Neoplatonic theurgy. So let's talk a little bit more about Eros. So Eros connects with the myth of the Orphic Ed, egg, surrounded by the cosmic snake or Ouroboros from the Orphic mystery schools, which went back to Greece in the fifth century. Uh, they called, they taught that Eros was the same as a figure called Phanes. Uh, and uh, this is the, basically the creator of the universal egg called Nyx as well. So different aspects to uh, this deity. So I think, uh, I think it was Nyx. Well, this is Nyx basically the primeval chaos. That gives birth to existence. So basically, it forms all the all the gods are birthed from the primeval chaos, basically, in Greek mythology. Now we see depictions of Phanes with his uh, body surrounded by a serpent, strongly resent that strongly resembles the images of the Leontestephaline, uh, the, the lion-headed version of Mithras, as Saturn, also shown as uh, wrapped in a snake that were found in many Mithraeums. So you see other uh, related symbols include, including the one snake rod of Asclepius and, and the double snake rod of Hermes, the Caduceus. So here we have is uh, some images of, uh, so we have Mithras in the middle and then you have Phanes on the right and then on the left you have Ion. So they're all basically different aspects of the same deity really. So then, you know, what's kind of think about what's crazy, like what's happening with like in uh, when you see like a lot of these uh, YouTube channels, they talk about uh, these egg rituals and you see all these eggs somehow manifesting, there's always issues with eggs. 
going on. So I just thought it's kind of interesting synchronicity that right there. So we have um, the Orphic egg uh, surrounded by the uh, serpent, right? So, and this all connects to alchemy for sure. So in the middle, you have uh, this, um, on the right, of course, there's the Orphic egg and then in the center and the left, of course, the Ouroboros. And these are all symbols of something called in the Hermetica, it's called the one thing, which is like this, uh, the primeval monad. It's like sort of like the, the source of all existence, you know, or the potentials, right? Then you have, uh, here's an image of Hermes Trismegistus I found that's in the book. And uh, that's, I think that's a wood carving. Uh, and let's see here. Now here's the uh, the Demiurge or one aspect of the Demiurge really. I mean, it just seems like to me, uh, all these philosophers, that I mean, they had to believe in Demiurge. I mean, if you weren't part of the, I mean, if you were, any good Platonist would believe in the Demiurge. So the, all these different gods are like uh, aspects of that or representations of the Demiurge, if you, if you ask any good Platonist, right? Or Neoplatonist. And then over here, I, I, this is from my book, um, or images I found really online, but I added in the book. So you have Abraxas on the, on the left and on the right, you have the line-headed Abraxas. Kind of seems like there's there. I mean, there's multiple practices going on. So I thought that was interesting. So, and I talk about that in the um, the Amplicus uh, essay. Now, this is a an, an Ophite Gnostic map of the universe. And uh, if you look at the top, it says here the sphere of Sophia, the soul of the world. It kind of looks like an egg, right? Uh, and then uh, below that uh, is uh, Gehenna or Tartarus. So, and then uh, Leviathan, a behemoth, basically uh, are said to surround uh, our world. This is what a lot of these Gnostics believed, right? The dragon eternally surrounds our universe or our world, if you want to call it that. But uh, then there are, of course, the, the, the uh, seven planetary powers. So there's Aloy, Sabaoth, Yaldabaoth, is mentioned here, Adonai. Uh, then, of course, below that, and you see the different angels like Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, Suriel. Then here's another Gnostic Ophite map that I found and you know it's all very Kabbalistic so it's sort of, it's sort of like I mean of course obviously the Ophites didn't actually wrote this but devices but it's sort of like a, an image representation of what what we see uh, written by um, Kelsus so he wrote a book called uh, True History so he was a platonic uh, historian and uh, he was quoted by uh, another or a Christian uh, apologist by the name of Origen but he was trying to um, uh, say, you know, this is all uh, this is all nonsense. You know, he's trying to refute uh, Kelsus because Kelsus was on a rampage of refuting Christianity. So, because back then, you know, uh, 
around Kelsey's time, Christianity was basically a fringe alien sect, right? But what's interesting in, in that essay is that uh, the Ophites and the Christians were sort of like viewed as the same, one the same. So this uh, uh, this division between heresy and orthodoxy wasn't as uh, fine-tuned back then, right? As we look, so when you look towards uh, origins time, that became more uh, sanitized, you know, Christianity that is. So you have um, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then uh, you have the gates of paradise. Then there's, of course, there's the flaming sword that protects uh, from the lower archons. Uh, here's another um, image of this uh, Ophite map. And let's see here. Here's another one. I think this is my favorite, actually. So, uh, I think it's just more, much more cleaner image, really. That it's a pretty good representation of the Ophite map. So you have Leviathan. You have the different um, planetary energies that um, sort of like basically the these are archonic heavens that are stacked on top of each other, sort of like Russian dolls. So you have them and then beneath them is behemoth the earth and tartaros and of course above all that is leviathan and then uh beyond leviathan of, of course is the um the fixed stars looks like and then it has paradise and then it, and then then beyond that of course is the pleroma the father of all now we sort of see like a a reflection of that by uh, the tree of fire. But, and this is sort of like a, a diagram that was devised by, um, I'm sure, by people who looked at the cosmology of Simon the Magician. So he wrote a book called, well, at least a Simonian author. We're not really sure if Simon actually wrote it, but um, he wrote a book called The Great Declaration or The Great Announcement. And so I talk about that pretty in depth in the book. Uh, the tree of fire. So you have these different principles. Uh, so of course, a universal principle it, that sort of, I think, uh, said so like this, it looks like there's one, two, three, four, five, seven. So the, just basically different aeons that connect here with, of course, like there's the, um, the perfect universal principle, the five, the incomprehensible silence, supreme treasury house. Then you have, uh, the region of the types and seals, you have the middle distance and the invisible sphere. And then beneath that are the angels and uh, and humanity, basically, the lower regions or the sublunar regions, right? But it, it sort of just, to me, just looks very capitalistic, really. So in my opinion, it's, it's sort of like a, um, a much earlier variant of the capitalist tree of life, really. Because if you think about it, uh, Simon was initiated in Egypt along with um, John the Baptist. And, and if you look, read the Clementines, uh, it says that Simon was, was the son of John the Baptist or like his follower at the very least. So he could very well have known of Jesus at that time as well. So probably, they're all contemporaries at the very least.
though now it, all this very looks very similar to what we what we saw earlier, right? You have the capitals of tree of life, uh, and then and then on the right, you see the different angels that connect that rule over these different spheres or filters that filter out the um, the divine emanation of Kether throughout the universe. So this is basically a map of the universe. So it's an astral structure, inter interdimensional structure, I should say, that was put in place before time itself. So it's basically how God manifested uh, not just the world, but uh, the Pleroma, really. Sort of like a map of that. Now, uh, of course, in Kabbalah, I mean, that's like the backbone of all uh, ritual magic systems of the West, you know? So, of course, there's a book by Ted Hinn, so he gets into all that with path working. It's pretty interesting. Of course, it all connects to, like, the tarot as well, so the tarot it can also be placed on the Tree of Life. So, I mean, they're all connected, for sure. The Hermetic Tree of Life, that is. So, here's a really interesting quote that I got from the Holy Kabbalah. I mean, I, I know I'm kind of like mixing little diff different things, but it all connects, in my opinion. Um, so it says here, Bria, it says here that uh, from A.E. Waite, he wrote a book called The Holy Kabbalah. But it says here, Bria is that of creation, so-called, that is, of the emanation of creative forces. These forces are the Elohim, and Bria is, therefore, the Elohistic world. So in other words, it is that of the lesser or secondary gods. Uh, it is also called the world of archangels. It would not be exact to say that the archangels are Elohim, much less that Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, and Metatron, and so forth, are deities according to the Kabbalah. So here's another uh, image of the Kabbalah Tree of Life from um, The Moonchild that Sowed by Carl Stone. Really interesting occult book. You can get a hold of that one. Of course, there's the um, different uh, tarot attributions that we see as well to connect with the different uh, pathways, to connect with the different sephirots on the Tree of Life. Now, of course, above that is, you know, Ain Sof, Ain Sofer, Ain Sof, and Ain, th the uh, three negative veils of the Godhead before manifestation or the primal nothingness. Or the silence, ineffable silence, that a lot of Gnostic sects call God, or the ultimate God, or the the, de the divinity behind God, really, you want to call it that. But then uh, here's another representation, the tree of life, or, or uh, the continuation of that. Uh, then, of course, Hode is very mercurial, for sure. So it connects to what we looked at earlier. Okay. Now, this is um, something I, I found here. So, or a quote from Dean Fortune. So, but before that, we get to that, it says, cult knowledge is hidden because it cannot be spoken. So, the gnosis is awakening to your higher intellect, or the noose. So, which is governed by Hode on the tree of life, on the pillar of severity. Uh, so, you want your intellect to be severe because it purifies our minds of every concept that is not true or false, okay? 
Now, uh, Deanne Fortunes, here's what she says. So Deanne Fortunes is really good if you, don't, if you haven't heard of her. Um, she heard a lot of different books, but The Mystical Ball is a very popular book. Um, another one's called um, uh, Psychic Self-Defense is one. Uh, a Sane Occultism is another one. So yeah, she's really a good resource if you're not familiar with Kabbalah stuff. If you're not familiar with Kabbalah, start with her for sure. Um, but of course, there are other books that we can look at as well. So another one that I recommend is called, uh, see, A Practical Guide to Kabbalistic Symbolism. It's by Gareth Knight. So I have it right here if you guys see it. That was really good. And of course, here's um, the unfortunate book as well. But anyway, let um, me just read it real quick. So it says, the spiritual experience uh, assigned to the Sephira is the vision of splendor, which is the realization of the glory of God manifesting in the created world. The initiate of Hode sees behind the appearance of created things and discerns their creator. And in the realization of the splendor of nature as the garment of the ineffable, he receives his illumination and becomes a co-worker with a great artificer. Uh, it is this realization of the spiritual forces manipulating all the manifestations and appearances, which is the key to the powers of Hode as wielded in the magic of light. It is by making himself a channel for these forces that the master of white magic brings order into the disorder of the spheres of unbalanced force, not by deflecting the invisible powers to his personal will, he is the equilibrator of the unbalanced, not the arbitrary man manipulator of nature. So what she's saying is that uh, the the initiative hode, the magician, or the spirit, whatever you want to call him, he uh, he makes himself into the middle pillar, essentially. So your so your job as the as a magician is to become balance between the, the pillars of severity and um mercy right the negative and the white pillar or the positive pillar or the feminine pillar uh let's see and then it says here uh he works with a great artificer so that's interesting so i mean what did we see from iambicus earlier that uh, he, he talks about demiurgy so uh so again it's like so for them kind of want to work with the demiurge <laughs> or at least be, or even become the demiurge basically is what uh they're basically trying to teach in their initiations now here's a interesting quote from uh crowley no i mean i'm not personally I'm not the biggest fan of him but i did uh find a really interesting quote from 777 the other capital writings so it says a uh, hokma is the logos the messenger the transmitter of the influence from Kether, and it is, and this is shown in a lower mode in the Sephira Hode. So it's almost like um, the lower Sephirates are like, yeah, they're basically channeling, channeling the greater light of these higher Sephirates, basically. So it's kind of like a, like a fountain, like the movie The Fountain, right, from Darren Aronofsky. Um, let's see. Then we have uh, an image of the hermit or images of her the hermit, and that connects to Hode. So Hode or Yod is associated with the hermit archetype and represents conscious in intentional separation 
from distraction while going deep into the self or the unconscious mind to bring a better fortune, higher level of truth and expansion of the true self. Now, um, in the book itself, uh, the Laurel Turns Green, so that has an image of Oreo. And he's uh, he's not the most popular archangel, but he is a, a very important one. But on the on the cover, if you guys remember, if I have it right here, um, you have uh, Oreo, you know, holding a sun, and then with a uh, with this uh, laurel crown or crown made of laurel leaves, right? But this now these images just for me just remind me of a hermit, and I think or an Oreo. It's basically also connects to um, Hode for sure. Although, I mean, uh, Raphael is also, you know, obviously very mercurial as well. In fact, you know, he's like the uh, the Christian version of Mercury, really. Now, then I want to get kind of get into uh, the lost jewel, and it connects to uh, the laurel. Uh, so when Lucifer fell from heaven into the abyss, a jewel fell from his crown in his battle in heaven. Uh, so you see that in Revelation 12 with St. Michael. So the emerald is also associated with the planet Venus. Now, it was the emerald, the jewel regarded by alchemists as the stone of Mercury, otherwise known as the emerald tablets. Much like Eros, Mercury is the link between heaven and earth. Uh, in the biblical version, or sorry, vision of St. John, it says, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. See that in Revelation 4.3. The rainbow is the popular symbol of a bridge between worlds like the Norse Bifrost. According to the Grail myths, from this jewel, the angels carved the Holy Grail. When it was filled with the blood of Christ, the gates of heaven opened again. Then it says, let's see here. Now, hence why the Emerald Tablet says that in truth, without deceit, certain and most veritable, that that which is below corresponds to what that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below to accomplish the miracles of the one thing, and the one thing is a symbol is symbolized by the uh, Ouroboros, by the way, as we saw earlier. Then it says, uh, and just as all things have come from this one thing to the transform for through the medi medi meditation of the one mind, so do all things created originate from this one thing through transformation. So yeah, it's, it's all about alchemy, basically. So and Mercury, of course, is the god of alchemy. So is Eros. So you have, uh, here's the images I uh, generated from a AI program called Staria AI. They're of, of uh, Hermes Trismegistus, of course. Um, so I thought the AI did a really good job with that one. But I put that in the book, so it looks pretty cool to me. Now, this is a now. This doesn't really connect to what we discussed earlier, but it is in the book. 
Uh, and I talked about in depth in, in the book how uh, there is a deity called Saba Zeus. Uh, and he was uh, basically a mixture of Dionysus and Zeus, if I can, if I'm in Jupiter, if I remember correctly. But it just so happens he does the same pose as Saint Peter, and Saint Peter uh, can be equated with Janus. Uh, and Janus is uh, a very uh, Mithraic deity. He's he's the ones that hold the keys of, to heaven, right? So he his uh, he has two faces that go uh, opposite ways, right? Now, um, in the book, so I get into this essay that I found online. It's by Ernest Martin, if I remember correctly. So he wrote an essay called Simon and His Universal Church. And what's so crazy about the whole essay is that he... He actually thinks that uh, Simon the Magician actually created the Roman Catholic Church. So I thought that was really interesting. And I get into that in the, in the book. So I, I, so I sort of investigate that, what it all means what, and how it all connects to a lot of these, uh, a lot of like these paganism that I actually looked into. So, and then of course you have... Um, uh, the Vaticanus is the Latin word for Vatus, which means uh, prophet or soothsayer. <laughs> so there's a lot of like uh, alchemical symbolism going on in the Roman Catholic Church for sure. Now, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I don't hate on snakes. I mean, but I know it is, of course, associated with the devil and all that jazz. But, you know, the, the serpent is a very orphic or alchemical symbol, as we just saw earlier. And of course, with Sophia as well. And of course, you know, also with, um, you know, the, the, the rising serpent from the, the book of John, where Jesus himself equates himself to. Then here's a Thracian version of Sabazeus, the horseman, so connects to a St. George. And I talk about that in the book as well. He, of course, connects to St. Michael. Then you have uh, Cybele and Attis. They're both uh, fringing gods. Uh, and um, the Roman Catholic Church definitely uh, modeled a lot of their stuff from the Roman remnants of the their previous pagan incarnation, Reno. So that's where a lot, even like the ideas of like, you know, the Virgin Mary sort of like have a, a basis with like uh, a Cybele for sure. And Cybele, I think the priests of Cybele were said to be uh, eunuchs. So they're like eunuchs for God or eunuchs for the goddess, you know? I mean, even Jesus in the Matthew says like, you know, it's, it's, it's good to be a eunuch, you know, <laughs> or at least the, uh, the Jesus in that gospel, that is. And there's Addis holding um, a hook, right? Then there's Michael, St. Michael. Was on the left. He's waiting to soul, along with uh, the devil. And then you have um, the Egyptian Anubis. So, I mean, I guess the point of, of me looking at all that, all the stuff, I mean, I'm just pointing out all these different overlaps. I mean, are, are all these, are, are they all the same deities? I mean, maybe. 
But I mean, they definitely have like different overlapping correspondences. Correspondences, yeah. Then you have another ion. They have St. Michael as uh, the mercurial psychopomp thing over the uh, dead soul. I said deal soul should be dead. <laughs> uh, let's see. Then there's the Archangel Michael defeating Satan by uh, Guido Reni. Then you have um, another uh, image I found of St. Michael from a different website. It's called, uh, I forgot where I got it, but it, I thought that was really good. Really good image here. Then you have um, another image from the Apocalypse that I found is pretty interesting. So it connects to my previous book, The Sun Lady Unveiled. And if you haven't read that book, uh, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty th thick unveiling of uh, what it all means in the book of Revelation, especially in the book of Revelation chapter 12. Um, let's see. Then there's like an image from John uh, Stekinsky. Uh, for the mediations of the visions of John, the image of uh, the angels throwing down Satan from heaven, right? Then you have uh, an image <laughs> that I generated from Starry AI again. It's the Sun Lady unveiled. Uh, and she looks pretty hot. <laughs> uh, I thought it was pretty interesting how an AI would devise something so just, you know, so much depth. It's like, it's so crazy. Then you have uh, my my book here. It's still out on Amazon. And uh, you can purchase that for also from lulu.com. So the artwork is from uh, Jesse Pepper. He's a brilliant artist. And here are my social media plugs if you want to follow my stuff. And um, that's about it really um do i have any questions at all <laughs> no that was amazing thank you alex uh let me get myself back here uh yeah. power is back on at the house but i'm still on the phone i don't want to switch i'm too paranoid about the recording but yeah no this is amazing this is uh this is what i live for and it's uh this is very important, as I've said, because as you and I have talked, this is knowledge we need because the elite know about these gods and they're still worshiping these gods behind the scenes. This Mithras and Aeon and all this stuff, these demiurges, because they know they have power. So it's important to know this stuff, this uh, trajectory and this vibe and these rituals and all that. So your work is extremely important because it, again, it lifts the veil on things, but I want to let, uh, if anybody else has any questions, you can stop to, uh, the screen share if you want, and we can take some questions beyond me. 